Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk about a Platinum Guild press trip to Miami, the increasing need for lab-grown diamond detection tools and protocols, and what's in store at the Tucson Gem Shows. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How you feeling, Rob? I'm okay. You know, it's been four years, in March, I believe, it'll be four years of COVID, which is really mind-blowing, and I've never tested positive until last week. And I had my little COVID uh, spell and I'm not a big fan. I got to say it was not that fun, (laughs) but I'm, I'm okay. I'm sorry to hear you got ill. I'm sorry to hear, obviously you're still on the mend, although you sound pretty good. Yeah, I'm okay. You know, for most of us who've had it, most of us, especially since we've been vaccinated and boosted and so on. It's just one of those things you you get through. Yeah, it's like the flu, I guess. Yeah. I mean, some people have a much worse experience of the flu. Some people have a much worse experience of COVID, but it's something you can get through. And I'm glad it's going to be in your rearview mirror soon. One hopes. Well, I hope you continue to stay on the mend. And once you've had it, it's easier to feel a little less freaked out about it. So there's that. Right. Huge bright side there. Huge bright side. Huge. Huge. (laughs) You know, we're taping this in late Jan, kind of crazy that we're already a month into 2024. And we'll get to this, but of course, when people are listening to this, I'll be in Tucson for the gem shows, which is just a, a way I mark my ears. It's almost like New Year's Day isn't so much a thing. It's the first day of Tucson that feels like the real start right. of the year. The trade it shows. used to be those events, that big spate of events, the 24 karat weekend, which they've since moved to March, but that used to be kind of the kickoff. That's true. That's true. So for many years, it was. I mean, I, for one, I'm glad I don't have to go to New York in mid-Jan or early Jan because that's it was never fun, you know, icy, cold, snowy, whatever. Even though March is not necessarily that much better in New York, but okay, it, marginally, marginally better. You know, I'll be in Tucson and we'll get to a little bit of what's expected from that show and what people I'm talking to are looking forward to and what we might see in terms of business. But first, I'd like to tell you about the trip I took to Miami last week. Um, I went for, to Miami for two days with the Platinum Guild, with PGI, and it turns out I, I didn't know exactly what the scope of the trip would be in terms of, was it a huge press trip with tons of consumer editors or was it smaller? It turned out it was, I think, 10 of us, all trade press, which was nice. You know, there was the crew from National Jeweler. Our very own Amy Elliott was there, who's a longtime contributor to JCK, but also writes for other publications. Emily Vesseland, our former JCK editor, who's now the editor of Gem and Jewel. Um, Jennifer Hebner. I mean, Really, in some ways, like a nice little JCK reunion. Anthony DeMarco, another former JCKer. So really, truly, it was hardcore trade press, which was nice. And it was certainly nice to be in Miami for a couple of days, even though it was very, very windy and sort of unseasonably brisk and chilly. It really was a way to re-familiarize those of us who already know about Platinum or maybe for newcomers, a grounding in what sets Platinum apart, certainly from White Gold, which is its main competitor in the bridal arena, um, and also just the various characteristics that distinguish Platinum in the jewelry marketplace. And as it turns out, there are quite a bit. When you cover jewelry as long as I have and as long as you have, 
you kind of assume you know. Oh, I already know about platinum. You know, I know it's naturally white. I know it's rare. I know it's heavy. I know it has a reputation for being more difficult to work at the bench. And that last part certainly is what we were really there for. We got to have a true bona fide bench experience thanks to the Miami Jewelry School, which is run by a guy named Mark Thurn. He's a longtime jeweler. He's from Germany. He's actually the nephew of Bernd Munsteiner, the celebrated cutter from Idar Oberstein. And Mark moved to the States to work with Susan Helmich, a jeweler from Colorado many years ago, started working with Platinum and is now a, a real devotee of the metal. And at his Miami Jewelry School, they do bench classes and training sessions for all kinds of jewelers. They also do sessions for salespeople like Cartier. So they get a real understanding of what it is to create a piece of jewelry from start to finish. And that is exactly what we got. And it was really cool. I mean, I've had a couple of brushes with bench work in my years of jewelry, but really very, very little actual tactile experience of making a piece. But this was even more involved because I sat there and made a platinum band, a whole ring that I now can wear and am wearing. What kind of tools did you have the the flame thing? I didn't do the actual annealing, which required me to use the flame. Mark did that for us. We all were there in this workshop at these benches. And one of the instructors sort of sliced off using, I don't know, some sort of cutting tool, like kind of a stick of platinum. And she cut it off in the exact ring size that I measured. It was 6.5. And she gave me this stick of platinum. And um, then I was you know, sort of left with this tool. It was like a kind of like a plier almost where you stick the platinum band in and you try real hard to bend it. And let me tell you, platinum, they tell you it's hard and it was incredibly hard and it required a great deal of force to bend because my whole goal was to bend this stick of platinum into something resembling a ring shape. You don't know how that would, let's say, compare to gold or, or something else. I don't, although gold is, you know, a lot more malleable. It's obviously a lot softer. I mean, it depends on the alloy of gold you're talking about, whether you're talking about 14 karat or 18 karat, clearly there's more pure gold in 18 karat than there is in 14 karat. So 14 karat is going to be harder because the closer you get to 24 karat, the softer it is. So I don't really know because we didn't have that experience side by side of bending gold wire, gold metal, but it was really hard. And, you know, it also work hardens, which is a quality I don't entirely understand, but you know, I think it's just has to do with the chemical properties of the metal and the metallurgical aspects of it, where the more you bang it, the harder it gets, which is just kind of mind boggling to think about. I mean, honestly, at the time I was actually, and I'm working on a story about tantalum, which is a rare metal, not a precious metal. It's a refractory metal, which means it's incredibly resistant to temperature and it's also incredibly resistant to acids. But I was sort of deep in this idea of the metallurgical properties of different metals. And so platinum, somebody compared, I when I reached out to a watchmaker who had been working with tantalum, they said, as an analogy, let's imagine that working with gold is like the difficulty level is 100. Well, working with platinum, the difficulty level is 200. And working with tantalum, the difficulty level is 600. So that might just wow. give, you know, give you a little sense of platinum is maybe twice as hard to work as gold. Well, and tantalum is off the charts. But in any case, back to back to platinum, it was just really kind of amazing to to be banging. You know, we got to do all the the things. I mean, of course, I had a lot of help from the instructors, but the idea of working this stick of gold, stick of platinum, pardon me, into a shape that resembled a ring, then you anneal it to soften it a bit, and then you can continue working it into a shape where it becomes something 
more round. And that was a process. And it was a process that required, you know, putting it on a mandrel and hammering it out, making it more round, eventually soldering it where the two ends came to meet. You know, there wasn't a gap because it, it was hard. It was really, actually, that was probably the hardest part was to get it into this shape that resembled a ring. I mean, then it was just, you know, painstaking and a little tedious. Eventually, after you did get it into the shape and after it was soldered, there was just a lot of hammering, a lot of shaping. Eventually, there was filing it down with a file. Then eventually, you moved on to sandpapering it in different qualities. And it, you know, it just struck me how just the nuances of, of working with a metal, once you've done it, I guess you get to understand what it should look like what more you need to do to it. But to untrained eyes, I mean, I had no idea. I was like, is this done? I don't know. It looks done. And so then one of the instructors sat on the polishing machine and polished it for me. And that's when the beauty transforms. It becomes this shiny, beautiful piece of actual jewelry that I then ended up stacking on my ring finger on my left hand. And I ended up putting my gold spinel ring with the gray spinel set in it that I had custom made. And I mentioned in one of the episodes we talked about last year for I, where I'd made matching rings for my sister and I, my twin sister. And I just love the way the two-tone looks because I've got this really beautiful white metal shiny platinum band. And on top of it is an 18 karat band set with a gray spinel that complements the platinum. And it was really fun. And I've just never done that. So now I just feel proud and I can see why platinum makes so much sense for a wedding ring because it doesn't chip away. When you knock a gold band, a little bit of gold will just come off the ring and you'll have a little less gold on that ring. Platinum, I guess due to the molecular structure, the chemical properties of it, platinum just gets displaced almost like a stick of butter. When you put your finger on a stick of butter, you can see that the material has been moved, but it's still there. And that's essentially what happens with platinum. So it just develops this nice patina over time. Um, and it's also compared to white gold doesn't have to be replated or, it's, you know, doesn't sort of lose its color over time, which a lot of white gold, and I don't really know how long it takes, let's say a wedding band or an engagement ring in white gold to lose its whiteness and become more yellow. I'm not sure. I guess it depends on your, how uh, often. My, mine's holding up and it's been uh, 15 years, my white gold wedding band. So. And do you wear it every day? No. So maybe that's part of it is just yeah, the wear. Yeah, probably helps. The, yeah, if you're not wearing it, obviously it's going to stay. But so it was a really great experience in, in a metal that feels like such an essential jewelry metal. And I think once you have a very personal experience like that, it's hard not to come away feeling jazzed about it, feeling excited and supportive of it and kind of being a, an advocate. So yes, I, I am the newest PGI uh, ambassador. So there you go. It was fun and it was cool. And I'm going to be wearing my platinum band with great pride. So do ask me to show it off. I would be happy to. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. Well, should we move on to some some more newsy aspects of what's happening? The lab-grown space continues to generate news, some of it 
slightly unsettling. Do you want to tell us about the latest development in that space? Sure. So usually when we talk about lab-grown, it's usually questions of market share. How much is it taking from natural? And that's still a huge issue. But there have been incidents and continued reports of people trying to pass off lab-grown diamonds as natural diamonds. And I think it's possible these incidents will increase as the price differential between the two segments grows. It becomes a lot more lucrative to do that. So first of all, it's against the law. A lot of people consider it a form of fraud. And a couple of weeks ago, we ran a story about a jeweler who is accused of doing all sorts of unethical, unlawful things. And one of the things this jeweler is accused of doing was selling lab growns as natural. So that's something that obviously, if you're an ethical person, you want to make sure people know what they're buying and they get exactly what they're buying and they understand what they're buying. And, you know, some people have one preference, some people have the other, but the idea that they're both diamonds, it legally does not work that way. If you buy a diamond and there's no other modifier, it's considered to be a natural diamond. And if it doesn't have the proper modifier, then that's considered a form of fraud. It violates the FTC guise. And we have seen situations where people have actually been prosecuted for that. Some of these cases, it's not necessarily fraud. In some cases, it's just sloppiness. So there's been a variety of different cases, I should say. And an example of something that is fraud and that we are seeing is that people will get a natural diamond with an inscription. The inscription matches up to the natural diamond. They'll cut a lab-grown to very similar specifications, and they'll put a counterfeit bogus inscription, and people buy that, and they see the inscription on the girdle, and they see the report, and they assume it's natural, and it's not. It's something that's specifically done to make it look like a natural with a counterfeit inscription. That is clearly fraud, especially if you put the name of a, of a laboratory on there. And we're starting to see a lot more of these incidents. And we're in fact starting to see so many that one of the things that GIA is now offering is that if you have a diamond with an inscription, or if you have a diamond with a grading report, you can go into the GIA lab in New York and within 15 minutes, or maybe depending on how many you have, a couple hours, they will just do a few tests to make sure that the diamond you have matches the accompanying report or the accompanying inscription. Apparently, these inscriptions are not that difficult to fake. This is something that's a real problem. So we're starting to see that. And we're also seeing incidents that are just kind of attributable to sloppiness. I went to an event at the Diamond Dealers Club a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about one parcel. I guess somebody had a parcel of 300 carats of four grainers. And it turns out one of them was a synthetic. And they said the, the, the dealer was reputable. It wasn't 100% clear how that synthetic got in there. But it was there. And they said, right now, you have to screen. You need procedures and you need protocols to make sure that everything that you're selling is what it's supposed to be. Because between sloppiness and people who are trying to fool you, there's a lot of ways things can go wrong. And there was a, they gave another example of a manufacturer who only does natural diamonds, gets things straight from the mine, make sure that it's only natural rough comes into his factory. So that shouldn't be a problem. But at one point, he found one of his diamonds was a CVD and he wasn't sure how that happened. Like, how could that possibly happen? And what they figured out was this manufacturer may have sent uh, some of the parcels out and maybe got a bunch of diamonds back. And it's possible during that process that when they sent it out to another company, 
that synthetic got in there. So it's a real problem. And I think the New York industry is actually starting to take some very good steps as far as installing screening machines for people to use. As I said, GIA had now has this service to make sure that the report matches the stone or the inscription matches the stone. IGI now has a very quick 24-hour service where you can just kind of bring a diamond in and it will tell you if it's natural or lab-grown. So we're starting to see people understand that this is something that's a threat to the industry and in particular to individual businesses. And one of the things that was said, I thought was very significant. They said, look, if you don't have protocols and policies in place and you think this can't happen to me, that you're good, you're not. This is not, we're not in that world anymore. And you have to verify all your goods to make sure that they are natural. Do you get the sense that retailers are doing this or is this going to be a huge sort of shift in how retailers approach their diamond inventory? I think a lot of jewelers do actually have some decent take-in procedures, but you know what? You can't be too careful. Mm. And I think people are starting to wake up to this idea that they have to test everything. There are some decent lab-grown diamond detectors on the market that are affordably priced. And one of the things that people keep talking about and keep referring people to is, and if you haven't been to the site and you're interested in this topic, you should probably go. It's Natural Diamond Council's Project Assure site. And that gives you a list of all the different diamond testers and shows how they stack up against each other and which one is the best. But the ultimate solution is to have something that's very easy to use and very cheap and that people can kind of just continually test. That's not really on the market right now, but that's something that we're seeing the need for more and more. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like if you're a jeweler and you're not careful with buying from the street or from walk-ins, you're really putting things in a very risky place for yourself. It does seem incredibly short-sighted to not have those protocols in place for yourself. So yeah, interesting. Never a dull moment in the lab-grown space. We've just got a few minutes left. So let me just brief you as you know, the gem world descends on Tucson over this next week. And certainly as this episode is airing, lots of lots and lots of people are coming into Arizona for the gem shows. Many will have been in Phoenix for the Centurion show. And then of course, the world shows up in Tucson. The forecast for this year is not, I wouldn't say people are thinking it's going to be a gangbuster show. I think the holidays were still a little bit uneven for people. And so I don't think prices are going to do anything dramatic. It seems like they'll be holding firm from everything I'm hearing. In terms of new finds, not that much out there. Some years you get a really exciting Tucson where everybody's talking about Ethiopian opals or a new find of, well, in another year it was emeralds from Ethiopia, actually. So there are a few places in the world that tend to have some exciting new deposits. I mean, one year it would have been spinels from the Mahangi deposit in Tanzania, which has reshaped the spinel market. So every now and then you do get a blockbuster Tucson where something very, very new hits the market and lots of people start to buy it. You know, for that matter, if you go way back to the late 90s, that would have been Paraiba tourmaline. And had you thought ahead and bought some then, you'd be a gazillionaire today if you wanted to be. So this Tucson... I hate to say it is not shaping up to be that kind of year where there's something super tremendous, but truth be told, you don't really know until you get there. I am, as always, going to be meeting with a handful of jewelers and 
following them around. I really, really like to be a bit of a fly on the wall with them when they speak to their suppliers and ask questions, because that's when you find out really what is in the works and what are we going to expect to see. When I spoke to Stuart Robertson, who is our Oracle of Gem World Information, Stuart Robertson, of course, from Gem World International, publishers of the Gem Guide, he mentioned a few stones that are poised, I think, for some more interest. And aquamarine was one of them, which, you know, a beautiful blue stone that has been around a long time and is more available than some other stones. But because of interest and demand, and of course, the blue color, which is always a hit with clients, tends to be a little more expensive than even rarer stones. There are a bunch of more jewelry fairs happening in Tucson this year than in the past. And and I wrote about them in a special report I did on the Arizona shows that came out early in January. But Tucson has always had some finished jewelry. In fact, JCK had a JCK Tucson show for many years that was successful. That was at the Star Pass, which was a little bit outside of the core downtown center area where you get the gem shows. Because of course, the convention center with the AGTA gem fair is ground zero. And then you've got a little nexus of events around there. And this year, we've got the Ethical Gem Fair, which has been going for several years now. I want to say this is the third or fourth event. Um, at the Scottish Rite Cathedral, which is just a short walk from the convention center. There's a new show moving into the Scottish Rite Cathedral when Ethical Gem Fair moves out called the Out of the Jewelry Box Experience. And it's less than 10 exhibitors, but they're all lovely brands, including dear friends of mine, Kelly Fundalakis, who has a brand called Golden Smoke. And then there's also the Melly Show, which I think will be wrapping up as I land in Tucson. So I hope to be able to make it there. And that's at the Stillwell House, another historic property near the convention center. And then across the way is the tent, aka the tent, the Gem and Jewelry Exchange Show, GJX. And then all the shows along the 10 freeway that are centered around the Pueblo Show, which takes place at the Ramada. I think it used to be the Pueblo Inn and now it's for many years has been the Ramada. So I think, you know, everybody's excited. I'm excited. I've always enjoyed my few days in Tucson and I will return. And on our next podcast, we'll be interviewing a designer, a jeweler who I'm planning to meet up with in Tucson and looking forward to hearing what she has to say about what she's finding. And of course, on our next non-guest episode, I will report back and tell you what I found. Okay, cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you as always, Rob. Always a pleasure. Uh, Much love to you and Susan, and I hope that you truly are on the mend. Yeah. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.